Romans chapter 8. Y'all excited? In Romans chapter 8. Of course, Amanda says, I'm excited about Romans chapter 9. And well, that might be a year before we get to that one. <laughs> because we're going to slow down a little bit in Romans chapter 8. So what we'll be looking at this week is verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's our verse we're going to be looking at today. Before we dive into that verse, we need to take a step back and kind of remember where we're at, where Paul started at, where he's taken us through, um, and, and then into our text here. Obviously, the apostle here in the first century is writing to the Roman Christians. He says, to those Roman Christians, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. Remember, he says that in Romans chapter 1. And then he starts his, his exposition of the gospel. He says, remember I said, now this is a long time ago, but remember I said Paul's thesis statement for the book of Romans was one, chapter 1 and verse 16 and verse 17. Which is the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then it says, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So what's he doing? He's, he's going to teach the Romans the gospel, the good news. But then we spend three chapters of him beating us down. <laughs> From Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20, he beat us down with the, with the law and showed that every mouth will be stopped before God on that day. Because we're all guilty before God. As it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then from verse 21 and onward, we see, we see the gospel there that the gospel is brought out to us. And then, remember Romans 6 and 7, we kind of dealt with, we're almost a parenthesis in, in our text here. Because Paul, in Romans chapter 5, brought out some issues that he needed to answer the questions for. So, and one of them was, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what he brought out in chapter 6. And then chapter 7 was, what about the law, Paul? And Paul shows us that not only, as he showed us in chapter 1 through 3, that we can't be justified by the law, he shows us in chapter 7 that we can't be sanctified by the law. That even the apostle struggled and failed. And he left chapter 7 with kind of, he dealt with all this struggle and then he, he gets to this point where it's just wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And what's his answer? Point to Christ. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're here in Romans chapter 8. But let me, before I get into what our text is here, there's a little, uh, I don't know if you want to call it an elephant in a room or a, a monkey wrench in verse 1 here. Um, does anybody here have a KJV? I have one in the car, but... Yeah, are you asking about the part that adds on there? Oh, yeah. That Can you read that? Here? Can you read it? Well, it's kind of, you know, I tell it. Yeah. You can read the whole thing. Yeah, just read verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says, 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Yeah. In ASB, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's it. Yeah. There's a Wycliffe Bible. It says, Therefore now nothing of condemnation is to them that be in Christ Jesus, which wander not after the flesh. So it adds a little bit. And then KJV adds a little bit more. So there's a little elephant in the room, a little monkey wrench in our text here. When we come to the text, you read the text, and I read it, and you read it, and you're like, oh, they, they don't say the same thing. This is not new news to us, but some of them may not even know this. But not only do we have a bunch of translations of the Bible, but the Bible was translated, the Bible being translated, is being translated from two manuscript types from over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. Now this is a little nerdy part I'm getting into here. So we have, we have all these different translations out there, but those translations come from over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. But out of the 5,000, there's two main types. The first type is the majority text. That's what they call it, the majority text, which would include the Byzantine or the Textus Receptus from which we got the KJV. It's called the majority text. Then you got the minority text, which would include the Alexandrian or the West Cotton Hort, from which we'd get the ESV or the NASV. You see the difference here, the majority text and the minority text. One major difference in the text types is right in their name. Majority text type has the majority of the Greek manuscripts. So out of the 5,000, the majority of them are the majority text and the minority of them are the minority text. So this should be easy, right? Majority rules. Not so fast, right? Not so fast or easy. The minority text has the own oldest manuscripts. The oldest manuscripts that we have are from the minority text. So for instance, in our text here in Romans 8.1, the oldest manuscripts that we have have what the NASB has, not the KJV. Then later on, centuries later, the words were added. Or at least from the evidence that we do have, we can make that assumption, right? It's not like the KJV only guys try to accuse people of taking away from the Word of God. Now maybe that happened, but we don't have any proof of that. So do we make accusations against people with no proof? I think not. All of our evidence says the contrary. All the evidence we have says that the words were added later on, not that they were taken away. So let's take a moment, though, and think through this real quick. Did someone translating Romans 8.1 feel if they removed the last part, they could hide the Word of God or take it away? Well, if so... Why did they leave the exact same phrase in verse 4? It's the exact same. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. It's the same thing the KJV says. So if they took, if they were like, ooh, I got an evil plan, let's get rid of part of verse 1. Why would they leave it in verse 4? And this is actually typically the case with any of the what they call textual variants that we have is they're I don't want to say it the wrong way they're kind of meaningless they're, they're not, we don't lose anything by it so out of all the manuscripts out of all the variations we have this is what's called a textual variant and 
verse 1. Out of all the variations we have, we can confidently say that we have, what we have is what was written. Or to put it this way, no doctrine of Scripture is perverted in any way by any of these variations. The overall message stays the same whether one text type has a rough breathing mark or not. So before we start, I just want to make sure that we have confidence that what we have is what was written. And this is kind of an elephant in the room, I think. At least I would. Especially one that loves the KJV. If I was sitting there, I'd probably be using the KJV. And I'd be like, well, Pastor, what, what about the rest of the verse? And it probably, even though it's an elephant in the room, it's probably something as Christians we'll never have to deal with this. Apart from within the church, talking with brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ. So for now, we're not going to deal with that late, the, 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 the greater reading because it's in verse 4. We'll deal with it in verse 4. So all of that was just before we even got to the text. But I wanted to bring that out just in case somebody was like, well, why does it say something different? In case somebody was faithful enough to use the KJV. But my first point <laughs> is no, not even one. Let's read the text again. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So before we jump into that language there, thank God we're, we're, you know, we're going into a new chapter here. We have new thoughts. We're going to be dealing with, Paul's going to be teaching us some new things, right? But let us remember that Romans 8 is not standalone. It ties into the greater picture of Romans. And what is that greater picture? It's though I'm a sinner, and I'm a great sinner, by faith I'm placed in Jesus Christ and receive all the benefits of Christ apart from my works, and I cannot be lost. Remember how Paul went in deep into our union with Christ. And I'm not sure if you remember this, but I dealt with when I said our union with Adam could be summed up from Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 to Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. And then from 21 onward, our union with Christ. And from 21, it says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, which witness, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. That's how our union with Christ starts. By faith. By faith in Christ, you, you are united with Christ. That's what it is. You are united with Christ. That's why it says, in Christ, that's what it means. It's apart from the law. It's through faith in Christ. Then after Paul answered the objection of the law, in Romans chapter 7, and he shows that even as Christians, we're not doing what we want to be doing, which is to obey. Then we get to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Oftentimes we don't think about that, do we? We think Romans 8, and all we think about is Romans 8. We don't think that it's actually connected to Romans 7. It's actually right after Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Then he says this. Then he goes into Romans chapter 8. So even though he says, Wretched man that I am, he can say, Therefore now no condemnation. That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Condemnation comes to the wretched. But Paul says no condemnation. How can there be no condemnation if you're wretched, Paul? How? Well, because of our union with Christ. He says in the same verse, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how there's no condemnation. But before we get into all that, I mentioned that 
to show why the therefore is there, right? When Paul says there is therefore, what he's saying is what I've just said, therefore this. This text actually doesn't even start with the word therefore, which I think is important, but we'll get to that. But when Paul uses therefore, or the Greek is ara, it's to tie in what he's about to say to what he just said. So we must remember that. Though we can see different stuff that Paul is teaching us in Romans 8, Romans 8 is not a book in and of itself. It's tied into the greater portion. It ties back to what he previously wrote. So you can say this, Therefore, because Jesus Christ will save me from the body of this death, there is now no condemnation. Which takes me to the sentence structure here. Therefore, isn't actually the first word, but the second word. Though it still ties us back to what was previously said. After Paul speaks about his struggle, which is true of all believers, not doing good, not doing the good that we want to do, but doing the things we hate, and declaring himself a righteous man, he says, listen to this, not even one. That's what it actually says there. Not even one. That's the first word of Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 is not even one. We, we see no there. But that word means not even one. It's the very first word. Therefore, now no condemnation is not even one condemnation. But Paul, what did you just say in Romans chapter 7? You just dealt with not, not doing what you want to do and doing the things you hate. And now you, the very first thing you say after that is not even one condemnation. You see the importance of that? You believer who struggles with sin and fights and loses sometimes, and even when you're wanting to do good, evil is present with you, not even one of those sins will condemn you. Not one. No condemnation. Not even one. Do we know this? This is something that's very important in our Christian walk. This isn't some just doctrine we just have way out here. This is important for us on a day to day. This is important for us when we lay down on our pillow at night and we're going to God in prayer because we've failed that day. It's something that's important when you rise up in the morning knowing you've got a whole day ahead of you. Not even one thing that I... Not one condemnation. Nothing. Having the knowledge that the sins I did yesterday or this morning will not even bring one condemnation. You may have a list of sins, and I, I'll say this personally. I may have a list of sins, and you may have a list of sins that can wrap all the way around the earth. But not even one of those will bring condemnation. You know it says in the book of John where it talks about all the other things that Jesus did. It said he did so many things that if you were to write down everything he did, the earth wouldn't be able to contain all the books that were written. You can say that about my sins. If you wrote down every single one of my sins, the earth wouldn't be able to contain all the books that were written, yet not even one of those will condemn me. Why is it important though that it's not just, not even one? Not even one. Paul's not like there's just no condemnation. He's like, there's not even one condemnation. Well, it's like, almost like, that's obvious, Paul. If there's none, there's not even one. But just like Romans chapter 3 when he says, there's none righteous. No, not even one. 
There's no sins that will condemn you. No, not even one. Well, just think about this. In James, it says, if we kept the whole law and offended one point, we're guilty of all of it. Even one point. If you offended even one point, you're guilty of all of it. But Paul says here that if you are in Christ Jesus, not even one condemnation will come to you. Being in Christ, even though we do offend in one point, there's not even one condemnation. That's almost like a contradiction, right? In, in, in our world, that is a contradiction. In our judge justice system, which isn't really a great justice system, but if we had a great justice system, it's a, con it's a contradiction to say, I've broken the law, but I will not be condemned. Because justice demands condemnation. If there was one condemnation for us as Christians, just one, if there was just one condemnation for us as Christians, we'd be guilty of all of it. One condemnation is enough for you to spend eternity in hell. That's when James says, if you violated at one point, you're guilty of all of it. That's what that means. If God were to hold you accountable for one sin, that's enough to spend eternity in hell. So... To slide us back into that. So if the man in chapter 7 who struggles with sins is held accountable for one of them, he's lost. If God were to hold him accountable for one of them, which I believe he does hold him accountable, but he holds him accountable within Christ when Christ paid for all of them. But if he were to hold him accountable for one of them sins, just one of them struggles, Paul, you're a lost man. So immediately Paul says, not even one condemnation. Should that, that, man, that, that should give us rest. That should encourage us. This thought, Paul brings it back in the latter portion of this chapter as well. And what great bookends to the chapter. Verse 1, he says, not even one condemnation. In verse 35 through 39, listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Just as, just as it is written. For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to, to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even one condemnation and nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. There should be no question of is the Christian eternally secure in Christ. That is... That shouldn't, even, that shouldn't even be a, a debate. I know there's debate on if Christians are eternally secure in Christ. I know there's that debate out there. But there should not be a debate. If you're in Christ, there's not even one condemnation. But what if I'm later on out of Christ? How does that happen? When it says nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing in all of creation. You can't even think of anything that will separate you from the love of Christ. If you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, there's not even one condemnation. Shouldn't even be a debate. We shouldn't even waste our breath debating people that think that you can lose your salvation. It's more than clear in this chapter. As Christians, as a person who is in Christ, 
who has union with Christ, there is not even one condemnation and nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. You know, this is what, what Romans, when we get there, Romans 9 is actually teaching. We know it's teaching about election and reprobation and stuff, but it's teaching that because Romans chapter 8 shows that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And so then obviously the question was, well, what about Israel? Weren't they in Christ and now they're gone? But we ain't there yet, so let's not jump into Romans 9. But Paul in Romans 8 is teaching us that we are secure. There's not even one condemnation. You are secure. If you're in Christ by faith today, nothing in all of the world or anywhere, even angels, principalities, powers, devils, anything, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. And our second point here is condemnation and curse. First point is no, not even one. Second point, condemnation and curse. So it says there's not even one condemnation. What is this condemnation that it's speaking about? It's great that we don't have even one. But what is it? Well, this word here is actually used only three times in the New Testament. Twice in chapter 5 of Romans and right here. So let's look at chapter 5 of Romans. Um... Jason, do you mind reading 16 and 18, chapter 5? Romans 5, 16 and 18. Yeah. <clears throat> and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one tra trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Well, Just 17, right? Just 18. Okay. <coughs> For because... Of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one of active righteousness leads to justification and the life for all men. You see, both verse 16 and 18 there, that word condemnation Jews. Same word. The only, the only three times it's used in the New Testament. Right there in chapter 5 and right here in chapter 8. So, condemnation first came through Adam. That's the context of chapter 5, right? But it wasn't simply through Adam. It was through Adam's sin. It's because Adam sinned. Adam sinned and brought forth condemnation. And, and what was that condemnation? It was death, right? It was spiritual and physical death. When Adam sinned, he brought into the world death. Physical death and spiritual death. That's the curse. Right? And as we know that the curse, we can look out here and see the curse. Things die. Physically, we don't see it spiritually in a sense, unless you were given spiritual eyes, as a Christian, I believe, has, when we can see somebody who's walking in spiritual death. But we see things dying all the time. That's the curse. Sin entered the world and death through sin, as it actually says in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. Why? Why did death enter? After sin, because God cursed the world because of sin. And because of the curse, there is spiritual death and physical death. Now this is a little side note, just real quick, and I'm going to come back to it. As a Christian now, this is not true of us anymore. Because the second Adam has reversed this curse. And I'll come back to this. But this condemnation is physical death. And we need not look too far to see this, right? 
We can all see physical death everywhere, all the time. I'm sure you could actually turn on it. I could get cable on a television right there, turn it on, and to local news, I'm sure there was probably a murder somewhere in Horry County last night. Because it's all the time. Death is all the time. As me and Jason actually were mentioned, talking about this, uh, I think when we went to last outreach, you know, it was uh, 150,000 people die every day. Y'all know that? 150,000. Now, obviously, the number could be a little bit more, a little bit less, but around 150,000 people die every single day. And if you break that down, to break it down to where we can actually think about it, it's almost two people every second. So every single second that passes by, two people die. We know the curse is real. We can see it. People die all the time. And that's our ultimate reality for humans since Adam in verse 12. This is condemnation of the fall and curse. People die physically, but people are also dead spiritually. We Calvinists know this truth, don't we? We know it well. And I think this is a real problem that people have when they reject the five points is they don't understand the first point. They don't understand that we're totally depraved. That man is spiritually dead. He is dead. He's not asleep. He's not in a coma. He's not sick. He is dead. That's what man is. After the fall, man had died spiritually. And, and all the descendants of Adam, when they come into this world, spiritually dead. They are what it says... In Ephesians chapter 2, they are necros. From whence we get our word necrobiosis. Y'all probably heard of that? Maybe not. It means the death of cells or tissues caused by aging or disease. We see that, right? That comes from the Greek word necros. Guess what it meant? Death. Dead. They are spiritually necros. They are spiritually dead. That's mankind outside of Christ. That's mankind ruled by the curse. If you're under that curse, you are necros. You are dead. You are spiritually dead. What does that mean, though? Yeah, they're spiritually dead, but what does that mean? It's similar to being physically dead. Let me ask you this. Go to the graveyard out here and preach Christ to those in the graves. What do you think is going to happen? Nothing. What about, what about this? Well, nothing's going to happen because they're dead. But how about this? Say you know somebody that died of a disease that we now have the cure for. And it's a little pill. Then you just give the person the pill and they're, they're healed of that disease. You go to the cemetery and dig up their body. They died of this disease. I have the cure for the disease now. So I dig them up and I give them this pill. What's going to happen besides you getting arrested? <laughs> nothing. Why? Because they're dead. And there's no cure for deadness. They're not mostly dead. Let me correct that though. They, they, there is one cure for being dead. And it's someone giving you life. However, you don't have that power. And neither do I. And I know there's some out there that claim that they do have it, but it's funny that it's never documented and it's never actually been a dead person that's been dead for a few days or a week or anything like that. It's like, ooh, I, I, I checked their pulse. They're, they must have been dead. And then they raise them from the grave. However, there is someone who did have that power and who still does have that power and his name is Jesus Christ, right? And when he went to Lazarus, who was laying stinking in the grave for four days... He rose him from the grave. And how did he do it? 
He didn't do the CPR, Heimlich, he didn't do anything. Lazarus come forth. And he got up and walked out of the grave. Christ gave him life. I like to see the faith healers do that. Back to the point though. Spiritual deadness means you are dead and cannot do anything that pertains to life. You must be given life and there's only one that can give life. The one who breathed his soul into Adam. That's it. Me and Jason just before service were talking about John chapter 3. You know in John chapter 3 it says the spirit bloweth where, where he wishes. The spirit goes where he wishes. He gives life. The spirit gives life. The spirit comes and goes where he wishes and gives life to whom he will. Man can't just go, I just want to be alive today. The Spirit gives life. Let me add this to this point as well. If you are spiritually dead, and you die physically, you will die eternally. That there sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because death, we think of death as an end. A death is the end of it. But how can you die eternally if death ends? Eternal death never ends. It's in a place called hell, hell where the smoke of the torment rises up forever and ever, right? That's harsh, though, right? Is it harsh for a serial killer to be put to death? Or should he just freely walk the earth and do as he wishes? That's extreme, right? That's extreme. Why do you got to take it to the extreme, Jeremy? I'm not a serial killer. It's not that extreme, though. I don't think it's extreme enough. A murderer, a serial killer, really, on our plane, only violates another finite, sinful human. That's it. Where our sins and his sins of that murder violate an infinitely holy God. Our lies, our stealing. Our, our thoughts of lust, our, all, all of this violate an infinitely holy God, which is far worse than me violating you. Though I shouldn't do either. We aren't extreme enough about our sins. We think they're okay, but they're not. And they deserve, even just one deserves eternal condemnation. So here's the big difference, brethren. To those outside of Christ... They have earned this condemnation. And if they die outside of Christ, they will get this condemnation. But for you inside of Christ, though you also have earned this condemnation, you won't even get one of those. One condemnation. Let me make one little practical portion of this. I'm actually going to come back to this a little bit later too. But This is why as Christians, we shouldn't be saying, God punished me for doing this or doing that. Or God is mad at me for doing this or doing that. Actually, we should not only not be saying it, we should not even be thinking it. I shouldn't be thinking God's mad at me because I failed today. That's actually, I believe, preaching to yourself a false gospel. Our gospel says that Jesus Christ took all of my sins, all of my condemnation, all of my punishment, so there is not even one condemnation for me. Even after I sinned, Again, and again, and again, and again. Condemnation is not for us. Not even one, Christian. None. So let's move on. The Redeemer in reversal. We had to 
curse and our condemnation and curse. Now we have the redeemer and the reversal. It says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. If you didn't know, but I'm sure you did, this is the key to all of this. This isn't there's just if the verse ended with without in Christ Jesus, it would mean nothing, right? You can't just say there's no condemnation for you. That's actually what we do now. Just a little side note. But this is actually what we do at funerals, right? You know, to the world, you're justified when you die, right? This person died all of a sudden. Well, they're a good person. They're, I'm glad they're in a better place, right? So they all of a sudden, they, they, they earn their salvation by death. They've lived their whole life in all kinds of stuff that they shouldn't be doing. But when they died, I'm glad they're in a better place. They say there's no condemnation outside of Christ. But that's not true. It's only in Christ Jesus. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you die outside of Christ, I'm sorry. I could not say you're in a better place now. I preached at a funeral for my grandfather, who I don't believe was in a better place now. And one thing I did not say was he's in a better place now. One thing I did say is, you are right now sitting under the gospel preaching. Therefore, repent now and believe. Because you're headed here someday. But it's only in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the key to not having condemnation. It's not our works are so good that we don't earn condemnation. It's not that our good outweighs our bad. It's not like some divine scale. If we just do more good than bad, we get into heaven. It's not that I'm not as bad as that person. You know, I could say, well, look, Adolf Hitler, I ain't that bad. Saddam Hussein, I'm not as bad as that guy. Osama bin Laden, you know, I'm not there. It's that Jesus Christ took my condemnation. In his death, burial, and resurrection, he has not just taken my condemnation, but it says he, he, he reversed the curse. And what do I mean by that? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ became a curse for me and redeemed me from that curse. He took it away. All that curse and condemnation and death was poured upon Him in my place. Praise God. Brethren, you are free from the curse because our Redeemer has become a curse for you. Let's actually turn to um, John chapter 11. We'll see what this looks like. Now keep in mind that the result of the fall and the curse was what? Death. John 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. What a blessing. You could just stop that verse right there. What a blessing, right? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Now, Jesus, you're talking contradictions, right? Listen. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus said. Do you believe this? Everyone 
who lives and believes in me shall never die. The result of the curse was death. The result of Jesus Christ is life. I think we actually clearly seen that in Romans chapter 5. What Adam brought about, the second Adam reversed. Adam brought death, Christ brought life. Adam brought condemnation, Christ brought justification. Adam brought sin, Christ brought righteousness. Adam brought spiritual death, and Christ brought spiritual life. Where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. Amen. And this is what we rest in. And I believe this is what connects us to the previous statement. Who shall save me from this body, the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who took my condemnation for me, so that I don't even have one condemnation. This is our message, brethren. That though, though Adam fail and we fail, our God, Lord and King, has come down from heaven, took on flesh. He was tempted in all ways like us. He fulfilled that law that brought about condemnation, what Paul called the ministration of death died under that condemnation, and took all of it for His people. Then rose, defeating death, and ascended to the right hand of the Father where He intercedes for His people. And He intercedes for the ones He died for. This is why I just mentioned this this morning. Just like the high priest in the Old Covenant. The high priest in the Old Covenant, the high priest, we could say with a little h, high priest, what he, he made atonement. He interceded for those that He made atonement for. You brought forth your lambs, I slaughtered your lambs, and I prayed for you. The high priest in the Old Covenant was not praying for Pharaoh. He was not praying for the Philistines. He was praying for the Israelites and praying for them. He was interceding for them. And then we get to the New Covenant. And you can see this in John chapter 17. The great high priest, the, the big H, the capital H high priest makes intercession for his people, those he made atonement for. Jesus intercedes for the church, the Israel of God, who he made atonement for. And by making atonement, has taken every single condemnation that might be due to you. And once again, Paul declares this at the end of the chapter as well. It's such a great truth, right? you got to say it again. <laughs> who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, who shall condemn the ones that Christ died for? Where's the condemnation at? Who shall condemn the ones that Christ died for? Nothing and nobody. You are safe and secure in Christ. So not even one condemnation is due to you because they have been spent on Christ in your place. Amen? Let's go into the application here. Like I always do, I'm going to address those that don't know Christ, the unbelieving, maybe those that think that they are safe and secure because their works aren't that bad. Well, I'm not that bad. You know the Scriptures say that even our righteous acts are as filthy rags in God's sight. Even the best things that we do as humans are filthy rags in the sight of God. It says that we all like sheep have gone astray. It says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that, that's every single one of us. I'm not standing up here like, oh, preacher's fine. He, he. No, every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
There is none righteous, no, not one. So outside of Christ, you stand condemned no matter how good you think you are. You can live a moral life here and still stand condemned since the measuring stick is perfection. Why perfection? Isn't that, isn't that a, little, a little high for us there, God, that you made the measuring stick perfection? Well, I mentioned it before, God's law is perfect. And when we violate it, He doesn't lower His standards to make you okay. He demands perfection. Perfect holiness, perfect justice, perfect righteousness. Do you have that? If not, you stand condemned. Ah, oh, but Jeremy, you don't have that either. But I do. I do have that. It's found in Jesus Christ. He is my perfect holiness. He is my perfect justice. He is my perfect righteousness. And by being in Him, it has been imputed to me. It has been counted as mine. So when God sees me, He sees me as perfect. Because I have His perfection. And that comes through faith. It doesn't come through my works. It comes through faith. I believe upon Jesus Christ and His perfection is counted to me. And I'm seen as perfect. So believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the call from Scripture. And that's what I meant by when you believe upon the Lord, His perfection is imputed to your account and you're counted as perfect. So today, as an ambassador for Christ, it says that we're in Christ's stead. Instead of Christ. You know where Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, we sat down, where He makes intercession for His people, then He sends His people out to preach the Gospel. In Christ's stead, I stand here today pleading with you to repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord and be saved from the condemnation due to you. Now to the believers here. I mentioned this earlier and I told you I want to come back to it. But because I think it's something a lot of us, probably most of us, probably all of us struggle with. When we sin, we think God changes His mind about us. We think, I failed God today. He's not looking at me happy anymore. He's looking at me mad. Why do we think that? Because that's how we are. When we sin against one another, we get mad at each other. Or we get offended by each other. Then we don't want to talk to each other or be around one another. They sin against me. I don't want to be around them anymore. I don't even want to talk to them. And I surely don't want to look them in the eyes. Y'all been in those positions? So when we sin against God, we think the same. However, the fact is, when we say God is holy, what that really means is He's not like us. He's apart from us. That's what the, whole, the holiness of God is. It's not that it's just He's morally pure, which He is, but it means He's not like us. He's apart from us. He's altogether holy, apart from us. That's why when God calls you a saint, which is a holy one, that's what the word actually means when you say a saint. You are a holy one. Guess what He's called you out of? He called you to be apart from the world. God is holy. He's not like us. He doesn't change His mind. I was thinking about this driving the other day. God doesn't think. How can He... There's no new thought ever occurred to God. He's always been all-knowing. 
Talk about trying to blow your mind when you're way out in the country in North Carolina and or I guess maybe South Carolina that day. He is of one mind and who can turn him, Job said. God's love doesn't change towards you. Even when you're sinning. This is a fact of the gospel. That is the fact of the gospel. This is why Paul was being accused of antinomianism. That we already dealt with. That being in Christ, I am seen as though I was as perfect as Christ is. It sounds almost blasphemous to say it. Forever. Even now. This is one of the things I didn't bring out in the text and probably should have. But notice it says, there is now not even one condemnation for you. Now no condemnation for you. It's not talking about the future. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. You, person in Christ, right now, you have not one condemnation against you. Not just in heaven, but on earth. Though you've sinned this morning. Though you fall with your wife before you came in here. Or beat your children. Or children beat your parents. You've sinned this morning, but if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation now. So even in that sin, God's relationship does not change towards you. See, we can't, we can't do this, right? This doesn't fit between our ears. That somebody can sin against us and our relationship not change. Because our relationships change when people sin against us, right? Or when we sin against others, all of a sudden now, I, I, I'm just kind of scared to talk to them now. This should not be an encouragement to sin either. But I think the contrary. By the unchanging, everlasting love of God that is shown to you, you should not want to sin. The fact that even when I sin, God's relationship doesn't change me and He still sees me as perfect and He loves me the same as He does when I'm doing good as when I'm not doing good, it should make me want to do good more. And that's actually the Romans 7 struggle, right? So, let's, as this church, believe the gospel, which is that his love never changes for us in Christ. What shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Believe the gospel, repent of your sins, and fight the good fight. Just as you right now have no condemnation, you're called to fight the good fight now as a redeemed one. Let's move to the last point here, our call to war. Brethren, I say this often, it's because I because we need it. But this war has been won. We're fighting a war that's already been won. You now have no condemnation. And by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, who is now seated on his throne, he is conquering the nations through us. Like it, I don't think so. Well, are we not Gentiles in America? Seems like he's conquering the nations. Is he still sending people out and going into countries and conquering the nations? He sure is. Are we going to be so tied down to our sins, or are we going to recognize that we have no condemnation and take that message to the lost? What? A, there's not a greater message, right? 
There's no greater message in all the world than not even one condemnation for me. That I can step off into eternity and not have to worry about anything. And that's our calling is to take that message. You know, we see in Scripture, we see different roles of man and woman, a child, of masters and servants, of pastors and deacons. But one thing they all have in common is the calling of taking forth the gospel to the ends of the earth. We all have that call. None of us right now can sit here and say, he's not talking to me. That calls for all of us. Why? Because God has told us he's going to save people to the ends of the earth. He's promised it. God's promised that. Let me bring this up. Yesterday, me and Brother Zach were having a conversation talking about uh, politics. And it was mentioned that it, it's hard for a godly man to come up in politics today in our world. It's hard for a godly man to come up in politics. They don't want that. And no, it may be true right now. It won't be true forever. God has promised. Listen to this. Psalm 72, 8-11. He, talking about Christ, shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the rivers unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before Him, and His enemies shall lift the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles shall present shall bring presents. The king of Sheba and Saba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. This is what is coming, brother. It may not be in our lifetime, but it may be in our lifetime. But this is coming. God has promised that all nations shall serve him and all kings shall bow before him. Would it not be great to see that in our lifetime? How is this accomplished? By us sitting down watching television, watching Fox News or CNN or whatever thing we're watching on television, complaining about the politics? Or would it be that we're out preaching the gospel and we get in positions to, to take over this? Right? That's what he said he's going to do. And he's going to use us. He's going to use the church to do it. He's going to use us taking forth that gospel message. So the question is, will you say like Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. It's your calling. Are you going to take up the mantle or just be content with your comfortable life here? That's our calling. I know I'm, we, I've talked with a couple of brothers about this. You know, Some of those older, what we would call somewhat heroes of the faith here in America are dying off right now, aren't they? Some of those older... Older men that were, that were taking forth the gospel and teaching people. And they're, they're, some of them are dying off. We almost lost Bodie, was it a year or two ago? Lost Fro. We didn't ever lose any of us because we're going to see him again. But who's going to take up the mantle? Or are we, are we too scared? Well, I, I didn't go to the seminary like they did. So? Do you know the gospel? Take it forth. Let me quote Hebrews 12 here in closing. Hebrews 12, 28, it says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. That's talking about our kingdom. Our kingdom cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby, now, now this is what it always calls us to, 
whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen.